It is powerful imagery that we sing about, isn't it? Which somehow tries to convey to us something about the cost and the extent to which God is willing to go in his love for us. It's hard to capture all of that, so much bigger than what we can fully wrap our minds around. And yet it's that concept that is at the heart of the service that uh, we celebrate this morning as we gather together for communion. Something Jesus invites us to do in remembrance of him. A memory that we are to be intentional about bringing with us in all aspects of our lives, but especially as we gather for this service today. I wonder just how aware we are of the memories that we bring with us this morning. You know, for better or for worse, the memories that we carry with us and the memories that we hold close can be very powerful forces in our lives. Not only because they help reinforce our sense of who we are and, and the way that we live our lives and what's important to us, but also because they shape the way that we live. They direct the way that we go. They guide us. For the past several weeks now, we've been listening to the voice of Peter. A much older and wiser Peter, I would suggest to you, at least when you compare the voice of Peter we've been listening to to the voice of Peter we hear in the Gospels where we encounter him there. But this older and wiser Peter writes to the church and shares with them what's on his heart. He writes to the church and shares with us things that have mattered to him. And we find him drawing from the memories of what it was like to have been a follower of Jesus, to have walked with him, to have conversations together, to know what that experience was about. And while the sentence structure and the grammar may be that of Silas, at least that's what we pick up when we read uh, verse 12 of chapter 5, it appears that Silas was kind of the secretary who was writing all this down for him. The voice you hear, I think it's pretty clear, is the voice of Peter. A seasoned voice. One that had been around for a while. Who had not only learned something about what it meant to follow, and he had learned it mostly the hard way, it seems like. But he'd also learned something about what it meant to lead. And that maybe in the end, that they're not so much different. And as we have listened to Peter, as Isaac pointed out to us at the beginning of our series, we have heard him reminding us about who we are, God's chosen and elect people, living lives that are being transformed somehow by grace. And yet, ironically, people who are strangers and aliens in the world, a phrase that he returns to over and over again throughout his letter, a people who have a clear idea of who they are and what they're about, and yet, who because of that, while they are fully engaged in the world they live in, also find themselves marching somewhat to the beat of a different drummer, committed to different kinds of things, going in a slightly different direction. We've also noticed that this unique way of life that uh, we are called to as these chosen and elect people of God was much less about the pursuit of a flawless inner perfection that causes us to withdraw from the world out of a sense of anxiety, as if this were all about us and how well we were doing. And much more about an authentic, graceful, when you understand the word holy in the right way, holy life that invites us to fully engage in the world the way Jesus did. Not out of anxiety, but out of love. 
realizing that all of this thing that we're about is much bigger than us, something bigger going on. You might also remember the following week that Pastor Dan invited us to consider at least what one aspect of this life might look like when he talked to us about the rather difficult concept of submission, where again, as elect and chosen, and yet as aliens and strangers, people living fully engaged in the world, and yet people who are very much committed to God's kingdom and the principles of God's kingdom, are invited to respond to difficult times and even to injustice with humility and with grace and with integrity. Drawing from the example of Rosa Parks, whose peaceful willingness to do what was right and resist what was wrong, even though it came at a cost, reminded us that maintaining a stance of non-violent, respectful resistance does not mean that we're giving in to injustice, but rather that we're maintaining integrity, even in the midst of suffering, which is often much harder and requires much more courage than responding in kind. It also helps to keep us from being drawn into the cycle of anger and revenge and hatred that injustice can sometimes instill in us when we think that our only option is to respond to evil in kind. And so we heard Peter encouraging us to live gracefully in the midst of a world without becoming like the very things that we're trying to resist. Even when, as Pastor Chris was pointing out to us just a couple weeks ago, we may find ourselves suffering as a result. Not because suffering is something that God sends to us or because it's in any way God's will or is God's attempt to grow us into anything that we weren't before, but because suffering is the natural result of living in a world that's infested with sin. Suffering is what happens because of where we live. And in some ways it may happen even more so for those who are actively resistant to the evil that's at work in the world. It kind of comes with the package. Aliens and strangers, after all, often suffer at the hands of those who have a strong sense of their own entitlement. It's kind of the way it works. So Peter says that if we're going to suffer anyhow, or if we're going to suffer at all, then at least we ought to try to be sure that we're suffering because we have been graceful in the world, not because of the problems that we have caused or that uh, we have been involved in in some inappropriate kind of way. But however it happens, he says what matters the most is not so much that we suffer, We can frankly expect that that will happen. But the kind of people that we are in the midst of it and that we not contribute to the evil in the world by the way we respond. And so, in order to be able to live that way, as Pastor Chris pointed out to us last week, it's important that we not get our spiritual binoculars turned around the wrong way and think that this thing about living the spiritual life is really all about us and what we do which results in anxiety-driven lives where we worry about whether or not we're going to be good enough or whether or not God will be able to accept us and what we offer. Or perhaps maybe at the end, if we are able to, we will just sort of slip into heaven, the anxiety that drives a lot of religious lives, the kind of thing that causes us to disengage from the world and become worried about things like whether or not cheese might be a factor in keeping us out of the kingdom. But rather, we talked about what happens when we get our spiritual binoculars turned around the right way, focused on God and God's graciousness. Staying anchored in Jesus was the image that was used last week. 
And then out of the overflow of that and the assurance that that brings, we discover it's possible for us to live fully engaged in our world in a way that reflects the principles of God's kingdom. It's also when we get our binoculars turned around the right way that we discover that we don't have to let our conversation about personal spiritual life be hijacked by extreme and anxious voices that are all about being good enough. And instead, we can talk about being intentional about what it means to pay attention to Jesus, to be anchored in him and his grace, and what it looks like just to live in response to the assurance of that, that we find ways to keep in front of us. Not by running away and trying to be safe, but by reaching out and embracing our world with humility and with grace and with a genuineness, even if it means we might suffer in the process. And all of that finally brings us to chapter 5, where Peter brings his letter now to a close with a very interesting picture of just what it might look like to live in a community like this and a glimpse of what leadership might actually look like in such a community as well. And so if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I'd like to invite you to go with me there to chapter 5 of 1 Peter, beginning with verse 1, where we will pick up on Peter's train of thought once again. Well, notice how what he has to say here as well has been apparently shaped by those memories that he brings with them. We'll see little hints and pieces of those parts of Peter's life that we know about from the Gospels. The time spent with Jesus, the conversations they had together, not only the memories he brings of those less fortunate times when they were striving for first place or when passionate but inappropriate words were being spoken or when confident pledges of loyalty were followed by embarrassing denials, but perhaps most of all by other kinds of conversations and perhaps one in particular that took place with Jesus one morning over breakfast not long after the resurrection. It's a conversation in which a now more humble Peter than the one that we had seen a couple days before was invited to reflect a little bit on what it really meant to love Jesus and what that overflow might look like in the way he would interact with people around him. You can read about it later on if you want to in John 21. But I think it might be the memory of this conversation, this memory that he brings with him into his writing now that lies behind what he says next. Let's listen to what he says. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. To the elders among you, he begins. Notice that he's speaking to those people who have been around for a while and who also have a rich reservoir of stories and memories to draw from. These are people who may very well have known Jesus also, but who've been in the way for a while. And here's what he says to them, verse 2. Be shepherds. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers. Not because you must, so it's not about duty or obligation or arm twisting, but because you are willing, something that comes out of the overflow, as God wants it to be, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, it's not about payback or what you get out of it or what's in it for you, 
but eager to serve. Eager to serve. Something you can hardly keep yourself from wanting to do. There's an eagerness about this. It's about doing things for people for its own sake. Not lording it over those entrusted you, he continues, but being examples to the flock. A kind of leadership that apparently is less about things like the exercise of power and the position that you hold or the title that is yours and more about who these people are, what it means to be present in an authentic and genuine way. And then he says, when the cheap shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of glory that will never fade away. You know, it's intriguing to me that he appeals first to those who have been around for a while, who have the experience, who know what this is about, and reminds them that this is not just about being involved in other people's lives, but it's about how we are involved in other people's lives that matters. We did not just be involved. We need to be involved in the right kind of way as shepherds. The image of shepherds, those who gently care about sheep simply for their own sake, not because of what's in it for them, and to lead by example because they know that who we are speaks more powerfully than anything that we might say. But then having spoken to the elders, he goes on in verse 5 now to talk to the younger members of the congregation. Listen to what he says to them. Young people... In the same way, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. There's that word again. And remember that when we talked about submissive a couple weeks ago, it does not necessarily mean that you are giving up or that you're giving in, but it may very well mean that you're standing for what is right with humility and respect, even if you wind up suffering for it out of a sense of integrity. I think it's also worth noticing here that as Peter is addressing these young people, he seems to simply assume as a given that these are indeed people who are involved in the life of the church, that are helping to shape the community. It doesn't seem strange at all to Peter that young people would have that kind of a role to play. It's kind of interesting that our general conference president has been modeling this for us recently as well, last months, maybe even years. I'm not sure how long these conversations have been going on. But we find him traveling around at various places taking time to carefully listen to the voice of the young people in the church, listening to insights, tapping into the sense of energy is there, knowing that they can help us understand how to connect with our world in a way that we can actually be heard and understood if we're willing to listen. It's still as vital now as it was when the time Peter was writing. And I think it's great to be a part of a church where leadership understands and recognizes that. But then Peter goes on to remind us that even then, the way we share, how we share what we're talking about may be even more significant than what it is that we have to say. You know, young people don't know it all, which is why they need to be able to hear from those who've been around longer and have been over the path ahead of them. They have things to learn. By the same token, elders don't know it all either. It's tough sometimes to realize that the world that many of us have grown up in no longer exists. It's not the same anymore. And if we're going to understand that, we need to be able to listen and reflect and pay attention to what young people are telling us. 
And it sounds odd to even say that because I usually think of myself as young people, but you know, I guess it probably goes both ways. My kids would probably disagree with me. But either way, both those groups need each other. Seems to be implied in what Peter is saying. And he continues speaking to both of them together now as he goes on in his letter. Look at the second half of verse five. All of you, he says, young and old, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. And then he goes on and talks about what lies at the heart of our ability to do that. He says, cast all your anxiety on him. Cast all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Peter urges us as we go forward to be sure that it's grace and not anxiety that lies at the heart of how we interact with each other, what gives us our sense of who we are, what motivates us as we engage our world. For when we can rest non-anxiously in the assurance of our own chosenness and know that that can't be touched by anything but our own choice to walk away, we are freed and empowered to engage our world with humility and hope and with kind of a sense of abandon that it allows us to do things that we might never even dream of doing otherwise. And even though it's a world where suffering is a reality and from which we are not immune, our grace-tempered response to how we live might just speak more clearly and powerfully than anything else we might be able to say. Well, perhaps it's because that can be so challenging for us to keep in focus at times. Peter goes on to comment in the next couple of verses that we need to work hard to keep this in focus. He tells us that we need to stay alert. We need to resist the things that would turn our binoculars around the wrong way, that would shift our focus from God's grace to other things, because he says the devil, like a roaring lion, is wandering about, looking for ways to shift our focus, to take away that assurance, to devour us in the process which brings us back to why remembering is so important. He says we need to remember so that we can stand firm in the assurance of God's grace. Speaking out of the reservoir of his own memories, Peter urges us to remember that it is who we are in Jesus that matters. And out of that, to live our lives as if we really believed that was true. And perhaps one of the most rich and compelling ways that we are invited to keep all that in focus is through what Jesus himself invites us to remember. We gather today to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And as we do that and hold those emblems in our hands and think about the bread and the wine, we think about a broken body and spilled blood, we gaze, a, we glimpse a truly amazing picture of just what extent God is willing to go to in order for us to have that sense of assurance. It's a picture of humility and grace and love that suffering does not diminish. In fact, if anything, suffering seems to bring it into clearer focus. There's no clearer picture than what we see in the conversations of Jesus, even while he is in the midst of what he experiences on the cross. And it's a time that we remember the amazing privilege and honor of being invited to come and share and reflect 
even if we can only do it dimly, what we see revealed there and the way that we purpose to live our lives in connection with other people. We're invited to live out that same kind of life in our world, even as we allow the emblems to become a part of our body, to allow what we see there to become an expression of the way that we live as a community that also bears the name of the body of Christ. It's a service in which everything that Peter has been talking about is seen to be embodied in the person of Jesus and where we're invited to allow the same Jesus to become embodied in us. And that's an incredible thing to share and to celebrate. And in that respect, how truly beautiful can be the body of Christ. I'd like to invite you to reflect on that as Kara comes and sings for us now and as we prepare to take part in the service. With these emblems in your hand, shall we pray together? God, we hold in our hands this morning the hands that you've created, something powerfully rich, the best we can do at times to understand who you are, to make you present in here today, a cup which represents your blood spilled for us, a little cracker, a piece of bread, which represents your body broken for us. And we admit while we stand in this 2,000-year-old tradition, there is still so much more to learn about the depth of your sacrifice and the extent of your love. Thank you for this gift. Thank you so much for this gift. Our prayer is that it enables us to live as you've died. And we thank you for that, and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And for nearly 2,000 years at this surface, these words have been repeated, and we'd like to share them once again. For what I receive from the Lord, what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we'd like to invite you to enter in once again into the service that we're invited to participate in. seems fitting to allow Peter to close us with his own prayer. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen.